book of Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Acts chapter 1, verse 12. We're going to finish the first chapter of the book of Acts this morning. So what I want to do before we start is just go ahead and read the remainder of this chapter. And then we're going to get into a message today that I really believe is going to be very encouraging, hopefully convicting for you and for me this morning as we consider a little bit of a different perspective uh, of this passage. So if, you're, uh, if you have your Bibles, Acts 1, uh, verse 12, I'll begin right there. It says, so, so this is following the ascension that we covered last week, and it says, So then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons in all was about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Al-Kadama, which is the field of of blood, for it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taking up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, and also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. There's a lot going on in this passage, and it's it's very interesting. And so um, the title of my message this morning is, is going to be Maybe a little bit different than what some people would traditionally preach from this passage. But the title is Trading a Throne of Glory for a Field of Blood. Trading a Throne of Glory for a Field of Blood. Now here we see an interesting passage. We have the 11 apostles and and some of the other believers there. 120 people in the upper room. And and the apostles understood that the the prophecies of the Old Testament scriptures were fulfilled in that Judas Iscariot betrayed his friend, betrayed his teacher, betrayed his God, Jesus, and was subsequently guilty of that blood and eventually committed suicide, is what we hear. And now there's a missing role, a missing office in this group of original 12 apostles. And so the number 12 here 
finds its significance. And Peter understood and the apostles understood that 11 was incomplete. There's always this significance to this number 12 in the scriptures. And Jesus, when he originally called the disciples, he called 12 of them. And those were the 12 men that he invested his life in. And, And he would say things like this. When I think about Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, listen to this. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you in the new world or the world to come, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So the the disciples, the apostles understood that that not only was this for Jesus' earthly ministry for him to pour into these 12 men, but also there's going to be a purpose for them in the kingdom. There's going to be a purpose of, of ruling and reigning with Christ and judging on the 12 thrones that are surrounding the throne of Jesus. And he said, you, my apostles, you 12 will actually sit on 12 distinct thrones and you're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So there was a, an incompleteness here with just 11 apostles left. And the disciples, the apostles understood and knew they had to replace Judas. And that's what this, this passage is, is, is all about, is their, their process of praying and selecting two men and then allowing God to show them which man would take his place and would replace Judas in the, um, in the role of apostleship at the, in the beginning of the early church. Now, I find it interesting that Peter is the one speaking because you really have a contrast in this passage between Peter and Judas because there's, there's really uh, some correlations there because we know in Peter's testimony, he also denied Jesus, did he not? Three times, as Jesus predicted that he would. And yet Peter is here in this passage alive as the leader of the early New Testament church. Something was different with Peter after the resurrection. Peter took a different approach to how to deal with his sin and his failure and his, and his denial of Jesus. Whereas Judas, he's absent. Judas also betrayed the Son of God, and yet Judas is not here to see, to be a eyewitness of this resurrection. So these Old Testament prophecies that predicted the betrayal of Jesus by one of his close friends, um, they're prevalent in this passage because the disciples knew that this was something that the, the scriptures had predicted and this is something that we would have to do before we can move forward. We had to replace Judas's place in the ministry. Now, This is a very important event, and it does set the background for this passage. But I want to focus today on the tragic life and death of a man who has really become infamous and notorious throughout church history. As you think about it today, I don't know very many people in the top ten list of baby names today. You're probably not going to find Judas Iscariot in there anywhere. Now, if you named one of your children Judas, that's okay. But there's a reason for that, right? Because when we think Judas Iscariot, we immediately think betrayal. We immediately think, you know, someone who completely blew his opportunity. Someone who is now notorious for the one who turned on the very son of God and did it for just a little bit of chump change. 30 pieces of silver, which at that day was barely the price of a common slave. Now, Judas is referred to in the scriptures as the son of perdition, the son of destruction, maybe some of your translations will will say. There's only one other person in the scriptures that's given that very same title. You don't want to be in this company. 
Judas was called the son of destruction, the son of perdition. Who else? Also, the Antichrist. When we look at the, the Scripture and understanding the, the coming of the last days, there's going to be one who comes who is the incarnation of the devil himself, and he also is called the son of perdition or the son of destruction. So Judas and the Antichrist are the only two people in Scriptures that share this common name. So, so we begin to really understand how deeply lost and willfully rebellious Judas Iscariot truly was. So in one sense, Judas was the one who was destined to fulfill these scriptures and, and God's eternal plan as, he, as the scriptures predicted that somebody in Jesus' camp would betray him. We knew it had to be somebody. And so the scriptures were going to be fulfilled and Judas actually fulfilled that role in that prophetic word. But it's not that Judas did not have responsibility in his choice. Judas most certainly did have a choice in the matter. And so we begin to see like man's responsibility and how it is coupled with God's sovereignty and how those, kind of, those two things work mysteriously together that we don't always understand how God does that, but he takes our responsibility. He's still going to accomplish his purpose, his sovereign purposes, and he works everything out together. So that's a whole other theological discussion for a whole other day. But my goal today is not to get into those deeper theological discussions necessarily, but here's what I want to do today. I want you to see Judas Iscariot today as a real person. I want us to, to try to put ourselves in his shoes this morning. I want us to try to identify with this man who surely had a family and he had dreams and hopes and desires and, and loves and, and, and all of these things. He had a life. He was just a real person. He had his own fears and insecurities. He had his, his own appreciation for things of life. He was just another person just like you and me. A man who is used mightily at times by God. He shared in the ministry of Jesus. We know that all of the disciples were able to perform miracles at different times throughout Jesus' ministry. No doubt Judas was a part of that. He shared in this ministry that Jesus gave to his disciples. A man who, who lost his way, undoubtedly, but a man who could have really found his way back again if, if he would have just responded a little bit differently. But I want you to see this morning that if we're honest, we must admit that we see Judas Iscariot in ourselves. Have you ever thought about it that way? All of us today here, we've betrayed God. We've let him down. We've denied him. At some point in our lives, we've lost our way before. I'm sure many of you here today, like me, we've hit rock bottom before. We've made terrible decisions. We've made regrettable mistakes, just like Judas. But the, the real main message, and we'll get to that near the end, but it's not necessarily what Judas did as tragic as it may have been, but it's how he responded to what he did after the fact. And I'm hoping and praying today that, that wherever you are today, if you can begin to identify where Judas was, that you begin to see, okay, wait a minute, I still have an opportunity today to make this right before it, it's too late. So we're going to look at six mistakes this morning. Six mistakes that I see in the pattern of the life of Judas Iscariot. And, and as we're going through these six mistakes... Uh, really ask the Holy Spirit to, to reveal in your heart and in your life, are you making any of these mistakes right now? Because really one mistake really builds upon the other and we start to see a, a, a process and this progression in the life of Judas that really got him to where he became the betrayer of the very son 
of God. So begin to ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, show me if I'm making any of these mistakes and allowing any of this to take place in my life right now so that I can identify that and trust you to get me out of that, to confess it and to be delivered from it. So let's look at mistake number one. As we consider Judas who traded a throne in glory for a field of blood, the first mistake that he made is that Judas created a false image of Jesus the Messiah. Judas created a false image of Jesus the Messiah. Now, when we look at the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other God before me. And the second commandment is this. You shall not make for yourself any false image. God, God was very clear to the children of Israel. Don't try to take anything in all of creation. Don't try to take an animal, a star, uh, anything on earth, another person. Don't try to, to take anything, any concept, anything on this earth and try to make it into an image that depicts me because there's nothing here in this created universe that can possibly contain and represent God to his fullest. So we understand that the, the command of not creating a false image of the Lord was very um, it was established in the children of Israel. They knew, and of course, they identified that with, with idols and statues and things like that. But you know what? We're not very different today. We're not necessarily too different today. Many of us today have created a false image of God in our own hearts and in our own minds. Now, let's think about what, G what Judas did. Judas, what we understand about his life is that he was part of this, this group called the Zealots, and he was part of this revolutionary group, and he wanted the kingdom of Israel to be restored. He was, they were waiting for the Messiah to come and deliver them from the bondage of the Romans who had conquered that area, who had taken over control of the Holy Land. And these, these groups of Zealots were anxious to receive the Messiah because they were ready for the kingdom of Israel to be established again. And that's where Judas is coming from. So Judas was trying to make Jesus into his own image as a revolutionary and earthly king, but he did not want to accept Jesus as being this suffering servant of God. He didn't understand what Jesus' ultimate purpose was in coming the first time as he was going to the cross to die and pay the penalty for our sin, how substantial that is in God's overall plan for redemption for mankind. No, he wanted Jesus to be the king right then and right now and destroy the yoke of the Roman empire. Now, when you get into some theological discussions about Judas, it's hard for me to say that Judas was a true believer. Hence the name son of perdition. Um, we don't know for sure, but it's hard for me to say that Judas was really born again. Uh, Jesus called him a devil at one time. Uh, again, he was called the son of destruction. It's hard to believe that he was truly a child of God. And yet, again, he shared in this ministry of Jesus. He was so close to Jesus on a day-by-day -day basis. And I want to say, how many people today does that define, does that describe? People who are so close to the activity of the ministry, so close to the activity of the church, and yet they truly don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I think it happens all the time. I think when we look at our churches as a whole, we understand that there are people who have been in church or are associated with church and, and share in the, in the wonderful blessings of ministry and they, they hear the word preached and they see God doing all kinds of things, but deep in their heart, they may not actually be in a true relationship with Jesus Christ. How many people in our churches today are self-deceived and who have created a false image of God in their own minds? A, a false image of God that does not re represent the true God of Scripture. See, sometimes we try to pick and choose aspects of God that is comfortable for us. 
Some of you probably know exactly what I'm talking about as I'm saying these words. Sometimes we want to take parts of God and parts of the Scripture that are uh, they're palatable for us. They, they give a, he gives approval to our lifestyle. Or, or maybe there's something that we want God to approve of in our life and we try to make him out to be this kind of a God who understands that, that he would want us to have this or he would want me to do this or, or, or whatever it may be. But if we really try to uh, line him up or line that idea or image of God up with the God of Scriptures, it doesn't, it doesn't match justifying and giving approval of our own sinful lives. You see, here's, here's the thing about mankind. If we're left to ourselves, left to ourselves, we will never be able to conceive of a God greater than ourselves. Let me say that again. If we're left to ourselves, limited, mortal human beings, we'll never be able to conceive of a God who is greater than ourselves. That's what idolatry is really all about. That's why so many people in the Old Testament were making statues of wooden uh, clay and stone and, and, and idols to worship. And, and they were so ignorant to understand that they just made this out of something in the earth and they're calling that their God. You see, because they were so limited. No, no human being is able to conceive of anything greater than what they can already understand about themselves. And that's why it's so important as believers that we don't conceive of a God in our own mind and imaginations. But we have to go where to understand who God is. We have to go to the truth of the Word of God to understand who He truly is. It's very, very dangerous. I had a conversation with a very close friend uh, over the last couple of weeks, and we've just kind of been disagreeing about some things theologically, and this is his big hang-up. He says, there's no way you can say to me the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. He just will not accept it. Well, what has he done? He's created a false image of God in his own mind, saying, I don't want to accept the God of the Old Testament, which really comes down to his ignorance of understanding who the God is of the Old Testament. But I will accept Jesus in the New Testament, but if you understand the Bible, you can't have one without, without the other. They are, they are completely connected and, and supportive and, and correlate and, uh, one with, with, with the other. And so if we're not careful, we can pick and choose parts and aspects of God's nature and character that we like that makes us feel good, but other parts of God's nature and character that we don't like or make us feel uncomfortable or maybe expose sin in our life, we want to reject that. Many create a God who exists to serve their purposes so that they can alleviate their guilty conscience or feel good about themselves. But the danger, like Judas, in creating a false image of God is that when our faith is really tested, we're going to fall and we're going to fail because we're not going to know the one true and living God. So that's very dangerous, and I want to just challenge you again today. Is the God that you have conceived of in your mind and in your heart, is He the God of the Scriptures? Now look, there are many things about the Lord that we may never understand the mysteries of His nature and His character, but we have to understand that He has revealed Himself to us in His Word, and that is where we go to find out who He is and what He is like. Not what we want Him to be like. That's the first mistake that Judas made. Trying to make Jesus into this earthly revolutionary instead of understanding He was really the suffering Son of God. Mistake number two, Judas lacked integrity and accountability. Judas lacked integrity and accountability. He was greedy. How do you know that? He, was, he had selfish motivations. How do we know that? Well, if you even look in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, this is what it says about Judas. 
It says, see, Judas had charge over the money in Jesus' ministry. Many of you probably know that. He, he, was, the, he was the treasurer of, Je- of Jesus' ministry. He had charge over this. But listen to what John 12, 6 says. It says, Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put inside of it. Y'all get the picture? All throughout Jesus' ministry, Judas has charge over the money bag. And it says from time to time, you know, when nobody was looking, what would he do? He would just help himself to a little bit of extra and put it in his pocket while nobody was looking. No accountability there, apparently. And no integrity. So he, was, he had greedy motivations. Matter of fact, we see this in, in one of the, the wonderful stories where you have Mary who breaks this jar of perfume to anoint the body of Jesus before he was crucified. And this was a very expensive perfume. And who was it that called Mary out? It was Judas, right? He's saying, why is she wasting all this perfume on you, Jesus? We, we could take that and sell it and have all kind of money and give it to, to the poor like he really cared about the poor. But he didn't because he really just wanted it for himself. And that's why Jesus rebuked him. And Jesus said, no, she's doing a better thing right now. You don't even understand what she's doing to prepare my body for death. And it was right after he said this that Judas left and made a deal with the religious leaders of Jesus' day to turn him over for these 30 pieces of silver. So Jesus, excuse me, Judas did not become a betrayer of Jesus overnight. And this is, this is really where I want to hit home on this idea of lacking accountability and lacking integrity. None of us, very few of us, will, will wake up one day and make a decision like Judas made to betray Jesus, and we're not going to do that just overnight. Most of the time, it's little bitty compromises that we make along the way. We compromise our integrity here. We tell a little lie here. We do a little misdeed over here. And we just allow these little bitty compromises to start to build where you, it becomes easier and easier and easier to sin, easier and easier and easier to lie until you do wake up one day after these long series of compromises and you've made the worst decision, the worst mistake of your life and your whole life is shattered around you. And at that moment, that sobering moment, you look up and what do you say? How did I ever get to this point? Can anybody identify with that? I know I can. How did I allow all of these little compromises, these series of false expectations and and lies and deceits and a lack of integrity so that eventually Judas made the worst decision of his life. It's like the, the song by Cal- Casting Crowns, a uh, great message. Anybody ever heard it? Slow fade. It's a slow fade. Uh, if you don't know it, go listen to it because one of the lines that he says in that, in that song, he says, people never crumble in a day. Families never crumble in a day. But it's a slow fade. It's a slow progression of compromise after compromise after compromise until we look up and we've destroyed our lives with unchecked compromises and eventually made decisions that we never thought that we could make, even as believers. Now, just because you're a Christian in here doesn't mean that you're not capable of of doing something completely immoral, completely unbiblical, completely sinful. We still have that capacity. So don't think just because you're a Christian that you can't ever get to that point. You can. 
You've heard it said this way before. Sin will take you farther than you ever want to go. It'll make you stay longer than you ever intended to stay. And it will cost you more than you were ever able to pay. It's the way sin works. You think you can control it. You think you can get away with it. You think that you can manage it. But you look up one day and it's just cost you everything. Judas lacked integrity and accountability. The third mistake that Judas made is that he became spiritually vulnerable. So because of this false image that he had of Jesus, he didn't really understand who Jesus really was, and he had tried to make him into something that he wasn't, and he started making these compromises of lack of integrity in his life. See, now Judas opened himself up to spiritual attack, to demonic activity in his life. In John 13, during the Lord's Supper, listen to what the Bible says. It says, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, talking about Judas, and Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. You see, once Judas had reached this most desperate point, refusing to believe that Jesus would suffer and die, he rejected this notion of Jesus being the suffering servant. Satan entered into him. He was completely open to the vulnerability and the attack of the enemy. Now, a lot of people have said that they they think what Judas was doing, they thought if he could force the hand of Jesus and put him in in just an impossible position, that finally Jesus would just come out and declare who he really was and become the Messiah before everybody and deliver the nation of Israel at that time. And so, you know, maybe if you're running with that kind of a logic, maybe Judas did think, well, maybe I just got to do whatever I can to force the hand of Jesus so that he can show himself for who he really was, not knowing that he was actually fulfilling the scriptures to be the one who would betray the Son of God. What a tragic story. And so this left him wide open for satanic attack and influence. And many scholars and Bible commentators would say at that moment, Jesus was, excuse me, Judas was actually possessed by the devil. It says Satan entered into him. What have you allowed in your life today that's opened you and your family up to satanic attack? What are, you, what are you giving the devil this morning as a foothold to have his way in your life? Husbands, fathers, I have to look at myself in the mirror every day. My household is, is my, my little kingdom, my little domain that God has given me. And, and every little thing, every compromise that I make, every little opportunity that I give the devil to open up into my home, into my marriage, into my family, into my children, that is an opportunity that the devil is desperately wanting to take advantage of at any second, right? We have to stay on guard at all times and make sure that we're not compromising these things and becoming vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. Y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you right now, and let me ask you again, if you're living in one of these mistakes right now, you need to begin to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal that because there may be some things going on in your life right now where you're leaving yourself and your family open to satanic activity and satanic attack. Let me assure you, it's not going to end well. Satan comes to do only three things that I've ever known. He comes to steal, kill, and completely destroy you. We cannot give him one inch. Judas opened up his entire heart to him. Mistake number four. Judas willfully acted on his sinful desires. Judas willfully acted on his sinful desires. 
Listen to what it says in the book of James. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You see that? That's what Judas did. Judas was being lured and enticed by the, by the devil himself, by his own desire that was already in his heart. And then desire, when it is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It brings forth death. You see, Judas had a choice. He was willful in this cooperation with the devil. He had willfully acted on these sinful desires. When Jesus says, whatever you must do, do it quickly, guess what he did? He did it quickly. He left the upper room that very moment, went struck a deal with the Pharisees for 30 pieces of silver, and he said, I tell you what, I'm going to take you straight to him tonight. We're going to get this thing over with. He had plenty of time to think about it. Think about all the different opportunities that Judas had to, had to stop doing what he was doing and say, wait a minute, I'm doing, this is wrong. I, I, I know this is wrong. I can't do this. I can't follow through. He had plenty of opportunities to say no and to stop doing what he was doing, and yet he kept doing what he was willful to do, looking even Jesus in his very eyes there in the Garden of Gethsemane and kissing him on the cheek, betrayed by a kiss, leading the mob to Jesus. Judas had a choice, and he made a willing decision. Are you right there? Are you, are you this close to making that, that choice, that decision? You see, because really, once Judas did that, once he kissed Jesus on the cheek and turned him in, it was almost like he was past the point of no return. Almost. Because the mistake number five that Judas made is this. Judas rejected godly sorrow, which leads to repentance, and instead he tried to bear the weight of his own sin. You see, even after he had betrayed Jesus, even after he had turned him in to the local authorities, even after he had taken the money to betray him and all that he had gone through with, you see, Judas still had a choice. He had already acted in the worst way that any of us could have possibly acted. He'd made the worst decision of his life. And I want to ask you today, if you're there now, if, you're, if you've already made the worst decision of your life, or if you're on the brink of making one of these terrible choices, maybe you're already in the, uh, the aftermath and all of the, the fallout of making a terrible choice. You still have a decision right now to make. How are you going to respond to your sin and to your failure? 2 Corinthians 7 says it this way. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, a godly sorrow, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Highlight that. Worldly grief produces death. How did Judas's life end? In death, tragic suicide. 
that gives us an implication as to what kind of sorrow he had for betraying the Son of God. If he would have had godly sorrow, true godly sorrow within him, repentant, he would have come back, he would have run back to Jesus, he would have confessed his sin, he would have sought forgiveness, he would have tried to reconcile with the Lord. Instead, he had worldly sorrow. He tried to carry and bear the weight of his own sin. He tried to handle it himself even after the fact, which led him only to death. Tragedy. You know what one of the greatest tragedies of Judas's life is? I want you all to think about it. In the upper room, as they, the 11 are there, and they're about to choose a replacement for Judas, all of the people there were witnesses. Listen to me. They were witnesses of the resurrection. You know one of the greatest tragedies of Judas's life is that he never was able to become a witness of what? Of the resurrection. In his mind, he had betrayed the Son of God, and as far as he knew, he was going to be nailed to a Roman cross, and that was the end of the story for him. Think about the, the despair that he died in, not knowing that in just three days Jesus would be raised from the dead again. Everything would have changed, and Judas would have been able to share in the living ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and would have been able to sit on one of those 12 thrones of glory in the kingdom of God, and yet he died in complete despair. His guilt was too much to bear. He tried to handle his own sin. He missed the greatest miracle in human history. Just a little side note, a lot of people have wondered, you know, what's going on with like him hanging himself and, uh, you know, this said he fell headlong and he's pretty descriptive. His, he fell and burst open, his bowels gushed out and he bought this field with, with his own money. Well, there's, there's some things that I, I wanted to share real quickly about that. This is the way that I see how all that went down because the gospel accounts seem to kind of have a little bit of a different perspective, but this is the way it went down. Judas, of course, he was guilty. He felt guilty, so he tried to take the money back. Y'all remember the story, right? He tried to take the silver back to the, to the, the, leaders of, uh, the religious leaders of, of Israel, but they wouldn't accept his money because it was blood money. It's like, how legalistic can you be, right? It's like, oh, we can, we can nail Jesus to the cross, and that's okay, but we're, we can't take your money back and put it in the treasury because that breaks God's law. It doesn't make any sense. But however, they, they were good Pharisees, and so that's what they were going to do. But as, as Judas gave the money back to them, you see, it says that, that the religious leader said, we can't accept this money, so they actually bought a field, which was called a field of blood. It was a, it was a common burial site for people who were nameless or homeless or had no family. They would just bury people, nameless people, homeless people in this field. And so, in a sense, Judas didn't actually go out and purchase this field himself, but it was his money that he tried to give back to the Pharisees or to the religious leaders. It was with his money that they bought the field. So, in a second-hand kind of way, Judas purchased this field of blood, right? It was his money that he tried to give back. And a lot of people say, well, how did he, how did he burst headlong? Well, a lot of people would say, and when you do religious uh, scholars and you read about these kind of things, that my picture is this. As Judas hung himself... He's there hanging on the tree, and he's dead. And either somebody cut him down, or the rope maybe gave way and broke, and as he fell out of the tree and hit the rocks below, his body burst open. I think that's pretty easy to kind of reconcile those two things. But that's the way that I picture it, but some of you may have had questions about that, so I thought I would just share it. But, but ultimately, that, again, that's not the point. We're talking about these mistakes 
that he made. No godly sorrow for Judas. And here's the last mistake is that Judas ran away from Jesus instead of running to Jesus. Now, now let me ask you where you are today. Maybe you're in a place right now where you're trying to deal with sin in your life. You're trying to carry the burden or the weight or the guilt of sin in your life. And you're doing everything that you possibly can do except run to the only one who can actually do anything about it. You see, it wasn't enough that Judas ran back to the religious leaders. They they couldn't help him. They couldn't forgive him. Who did he sin against? He sinned against the Son of God. So in, in, in every sin, ultimately, whether we sin against each other or whoever, we ultimately sin against the Holy God. And the only person that could do anything about Judas's sin was Jesus, and yet he was the, first, he was the only person he did not run to. He tried to handle it on himself. He tried to return the money, thinking maybe that would make his guilt go away, but it did not, and obviously he went on and took his own life. I think Jesus would have happily prepared a mansion in glory for Judas. You know, Judas heard him speaking about that in John 14. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You know, if you believe in God, believe also in me, because in my Father's house are many mansions, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And, think, and you know, did he have Judas on his mind? When he, did Judas try to envision what that was going to be like when Jesus was sharing those words? And yet right here we see the tragedy that Judas failed to run back to Jesus, to be restored to Jesus, to find salvation and forgiveness in Jesus, and he missed out on this throne of glory. He missed out on this mansion in glory, and instead he bought a rotten field of blood where he died. He traded his throne and glory for a field of blood. He all but traded heaven for hell. My question is, how many of us will be like him? How many of us will feel worldly sorrow for sin but never truly be broken and grieved over sin, leading to repentance? How many of us will continue to run away from God in the wake of sin? How many of us are trying to handle sin and handle the guilt that we feel on our own instead of running to the cross of Christ, How many of us will say, Lord, Lord, on the day of judgment, only to hear Jesus say, depart from me. I don't even know you. We must be willing to run to Jesus with all of our sin and our shame and our guilt, no matter how bad it is. Because no matter where you are today, I pray you would run to Jesus like you have never run before because Jesus awaits you today full of grace and mercy and forgiveness and compassion. All he's asking you to do is to stop. Stop trying to handle it on your own. Stop trying to figure it out. Stop trying to manage your own sin. You've got to confess it. Run to him. Receive the forgiveness that he alone can offer you. I have to believe this morning, again, we're trying to see Judas like a real person, right? I have to believe this morning that if Judas would have gone to Jesus, if he would just, if he would just repented and had a true change of heart, and he would have run to Jesus and sought him out, I believe that he would have been forgiven and restored and saved. We remember what Jesus said from the cross. As they were even there to mock him, what did he say? Father, what? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Surely this was the same offer for Judas.
Judas thought that he was gaining the whole world, the kingdom. He thought it was time. He thought he was going to be the one to usher in the kingdom. And at the same time, he lost his very own soul. I want to share a passage from 2 Corinthians as we close because I think this really summarizes the life of Judas. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13, let me read verses 5 through 14. And y'all just listen to this passage of Scripture and I just want you to, to hear how it applies to what we just shared this morning about Judas Iscariot. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. Okay, so this is a call for all Christians to test our hearts, to test our faith, to examine ourselves to see, is Jesus Christ really in me? Am I I truly in relationship with Jesus Christ? Judas was very close to Jesus. Day after day after day after day, he was with him, he walked with him, he participated in his ministry, he was his friend. But I have to believe that Judas did not have Jesus in him. There's a difference. We can be very, very close to Jesus. Know everything there is to know about Jesus. But without Jesus living in us, we're missing the whole point. Paul goes on to say, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may have seemed to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong, for your restoration is what we pray for. Verse 10, for this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come I may, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. In verse 11, listen to this. Finally, brothers, rejoice Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Does that ring a bell? How did Judas greet Jesus? With a kiss of betrayal. Surely Paul and the church had to think about that as he wrote these letters. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. As we looked at these six mistakes that Judas Iscariot made as a real person, I'm sure he was probably a likable guy most of the time. Not a whole lot unlike you and me. But as he began to make compromises, beginning with who he thought Jesus was. He wanted Jesus to be the God that he wanted him to be. He wasn't willing to submit to the God who he really was. We've got to be careful that we're not compromising our, the view of who God really is, creating a false image. We've got to make sure that we're not lacking integrity and we're making compromises in our life. Are we opening ourselves up and being spiritually vulnerable to the attacks and the influence of the enemy in our life? It's not going to end well. Are we being willful 
following our sinful desires, or, or, or maybe you've already blown it and you've already, you know, made the, the uh, regrettable mistakes that you've made. Well, how are you dealing with it? How are you responding to that? Are you responding in worldly sorrow where you, you may feel guilty or bad about it, but you've never really gone to the cross? You're refusing to run to the only one who can really help you and forgive you and restore you, which is Jesus? I want to ask you seriously and solemnly this morning before we go into our time of of response. Sometimes the church needs a message like this because you're making some of these mistakes. And sometimes this is your opportunity to make it right. Look, some of you right now are hiding sin and secret sin because you think if I confess what I've done my family, my friends, my church family, I'm going to be so embarrassed. I'm going to be so ashamed. Let me tell you something. It would be much better for you to have to suffer some type of public humiliation among your friends and relatives and relationships in your church family than it is for you to continue to live in the weight and the guilt of this sin and try to carry this burden on your own because it's just going to lead you down to death. It's going to lead you to destruction. I promise you, I've been there. I have been there. I know what it feels like to try to do this on your own, and all it does is lead you to utter ruin. Consequences be what they may. It is so much better to know that you're back in a right relationship with God, restored to your God, than it is to try to keep this burden of sin all by yourself. So, th- so today, as we, as we sing and as we respond, I'm going to ask our worship team to come back up, and we're going to sing a song, and it's called Break Our Hearts. It's called Break Our Hearts, O God. For the sin in our land, for our own sin, God, may you begin to break our hearts for this sin. And I I pray and I ask you, please do not walk out of here this morning unless you have really answered the call and been sensitive to the Holy Spirit and how he's working in your life. Find a friend, find a pastor, find a Sunday school teacher, find somebody if you need prayer. I'll be up here. But the, the key is don't leave here thinking that you can manage your sin one more day. That's a lie. That's a lie. So as we go, here's your application. We must examine ourselves to make sure that we are in the faith and truly belong to Christ. And we must pray for godly sorrow that that leads to repentance. And listen, the last thing is this. Run to the cross. What do we do as believers when we sin? We run to the cross. Jesus died for all sin. So every mistake that we make, every sin that we have, we still are able to turn and run to Jesus. He is waiting for you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to restore you. He will take care of the rest, I promise you. But if you're trying to hold it on your own and handle it on your own, you're going to fall and you're going to fail and it's not going to be good. So as we, as we sing and as I pray, I want you to begin to ask the Holy Spirit to examine your heart just to make sure that you're good with Him, make sure that you're right with Him, and make sure that if there's anything holding you back or separating you from God today, just run to Jesus. You can do it right where you are. You can get right with God right where you are, and He will show you what to do next. Let's pray together. Father, it's... Uh, It's easy for us to look at a figure like Judas and say, I'd never be like him. I could never do what he did. 
But Lord, your word says for us to take heed unless we fall. Help us not to be arrogant or prideful or help us not to, to, to stand in our own strength or, or, or try to manage sin in our own way, God, but help us to see that, Lord, without you, we are desperately, desperately prone to wander and fall and sin and make a, a, a complete mess of our life. We're not unlike Judas. We're too much like him than we're willing to admit, Lord. And today, if anyone here in this room is is making one or more of these mistakes that Judas made that led him to the place where he made the worst decision of his life, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that, Lord, they would stop where they are and, and just turn to you, run to the cross, confess the sin, Lord. Save us, deliver us from our own actions, our own sinful ways, desires. I pray for a spirit of humility in this place so that you would deal with us, Lord, each personally according to what we need as individuals. Holy Spirit of God, we invite you now to move and to work in our hearts and in our lives so that you would open our ears and soften our hearts to respond in the way that you are calling us to respond. For it's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.